This podcast contains discussions about mental health and may contain discussions about suicide and self-harm. If you or somebody that you know is experiencing distress or is in immediate danger, dial triple O or call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Also, if you believe that someone you love is experiencing a mental health issue, please encourage them to go and talk to their GP as soon as possible. Thanks very much for listening. Barbie, how are you going, mate? I'm going okay, <laughs> thank you. I'm back again. <laughs> Lucky you. Oh, wonderful. Because I don't have enough Barbie in my life. Oh, my goodness. It's all day, every day. <laughs> oh, goodness. Aren't you lucky that you get to have me all day, every day? <laughs> mm. So, we were really lucky last week to have um, Debbie on the, do an episode with us. And I've known, as I said in the in the last week's episode, I've known Debbie for a really long time, mm-hmm. um, for about six or seven years now. But it's only really been in the last couple of years we've talked about her mental health and, and her mental health conditions and how she manages them and, and her, her history, which she was pretty open about. So we're not talking about things that she hasn't been open about on our on our show. Um, but for us, we were, and, and, and her, for those of you that didn't listen, and not enough if you did, um, there's, um, she talked quite openly about child, her childhood and her childhood traumas and, and the experiences of her childhood and how they shaped her as an adult. And how she um, is a woman who is in her in her in her sixties, but didn't deal with her mental health conditions until she was well into adulthood in in her early fifties, hmm. and and you know. The- so that got us to talking about um, the impact that childhood trauma and things that children go through um, through their life has an has the impact that it has on them as they go into adulthood and and as they they have their own families and they you know try to live their own lives there's often a really huge impact uh detrimental impact on their life as a result of trauma that may have happened when they were younger that has not been addressed over the years hmm. so we were really talking about the <coughs> Are you okay it's covid covid mm. Um, we were talking about the fact that um, you know back in the in previous generations in the decades prior to now there wasn't a lot of recognition of you know if something happens to a child they there wasn't an understanding necessarily that that would have a long lasting impact that it was just like okay well they'll be right. They don't. Kids don't really understand what's going on. They'll be okay. Mm. Where in actual fact, as time has gone on, and people have had various different experiences as they grow into adulthood, um, and often they don't recognise what those experiences are. Mm. They they might have um, anger management issues. They might have different things that take like major anxiety, depression, all of that that mm. could be triggered from something that happened as as a young person or as a child 
and that's never been dealt with, never even, that might not even cross their mind, but then that has had the impact um, into their, their everyday life as they grow into adulthood. I'm, um, I'm, watch, I'm reading at the moment um, a book called Everything is Effed um, by Mark Manson. And Mark Manson had a um, surprise hit a couple a few years ago now uh, with a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. You don't like it when he I swear. He likes the so. F word a lot. Well, he? he actually does and I he uses it like liberally it. in his mm. books. Um, but it's good because it kind of just feels like you're – it doesn't feel like you're reading a psychology text. It just feels like you're reading something that your something mates wrote. Mm. Um, but anyway, Manson's book talks about um, – and. I, I'm simplifying a concept that he has himself already simplified, and I'm probably paraphrasing it. And the Mark Manson fans out there don't jump on and go, oh, he got it all wrong, because this is just my, my interpretation of it. But he talks about, and he gives the example of, um, you know, he talks about moral gaps. And he gives the example, if someone punches you in the face, you come to one of two conclusions. That person's a bad person or I deserved it. But either way, it creates an emotional reaction in you and you have to get back to equilibrium. And the way you do that is by either saying, well, that person's just a bad person, they did the wrong thing by me, and you can kind of get back to, you know, you can justify that action. Or you go, well, I deserved it, I did something to deserve that, I deserved that punch in the face. So if we translate that into emotional punches in the face, metaphorical punches in the face, if someone mistreats you enough... You will. It'll create that moral gap, and you'll actually start to feel bad about yourself. If it happens over and over and over again, well, it'll actually create a permanent and lasting damage, injury, and lead to a potentially a mental health condition. At the very least, just lead to you feeling as though <clears throat> that mistreatment that you've suffered, whatever it is, and I use the word mistreatment, and it sounds like it's like really look. You know, it could be severe abuse, it could be emotional abuse, it could be physical abuse, but um, that mistreatment that you've suffered at some point, it, it messes you up so profoundly that you just start to think, well, no, I deserve that. And then that's where we start to do things to try and avoid that. So if, you know, if we've been abused by a boyfriend, well, all men are, all men are bastards and we don't want to go out with any of them, we're not going to give any of them a chance. Or, you know, it, we use drugs or alcohol to get back to that, point of what he calls equalizing you know getting back to that point of feeling being able to process whatever's happened to you and getting back to just feeling more back to baseline I don't want to use the word normal so I guess I feel like what you're talking about when we talk about childhood traumas or the, the things that happened to us in our childhood just those little things that cause us to go out of equilibrium and to, to mm. not be equalised, to create those little moral gaps. And sometimes we can get and back. And not even realise it. Yeah, and sometimes we can get back and sometimes we don't. And and I use the word, ins- we talked about the word insidious tonight. Mm-hmm. And I, I always thought that insidious meant like evil, but insidious just means it happens so gradually that by the time you realise it's actually an issue, it's too late, it's already an issue. Um, mm-hmm. And so there could be a bunch of kids out there and, and, you know, we've heard the examples of kids that grew up having things happen to them thinking it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Thinking that it happened to everybody. Yeah, and then just getting to a point, or thinking it was funny. Um, going back to our very first guest, Nathan, where he talked about, you know, his dad, or his, one of his uncles chaining him to a, 
uh, uh, clothesline using a dog collar because he was getting under everyone's feet and annoying people when they were trying to build something or do something in the backyard. And he's always told that story. He's oh, you know, remember that time you guys chained me to the clothesline? Until somebody said to him, what would you do if someone did that to your kid now? And he went, yeah, I'd want to kill him. And you go, yeah, you know, things like that where you kind of go, oh, well, you know, that actually wasn't good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's, you know, there's there's that type of trauma that you're talking about, like the sustained ongoing trauma that can take place, or there can be a traumatic event that could could have happened to yeah, yeah, the young person. Um, they could have witnessed, like a, a child um, could have witnessed an accident or mm-hmm. some sort of major trauma or they've lost their, you know, a family member, in, you know, that they've, and it's had an impact on them from that, that young and you know the adults that are hap- that are that are out in the world now that are dealing with a lot of mental health conditions um have you know when you trace it back you can often see that they pinpoint something that happened as a young person and i know with our facebook page i've done over the few years that we've been um running that i've done a lot of um I've written a lot about childhood, um, tra- like, you know, things that, that impact you from childhood. They always get really good responses, those posts. And and mm. anecdotally, they get good responses as well. Mm. So not just people commenting on the actual post. One of the things that doesn't happen nearly enough for my liking is people having real-world conversations with me about the things that say on the Facebook post. But those posts that you post around childhood anxiety and childhood, you know, mental health and what, what mm. throws us off kilter I always get good anecdotal that's good to know mm. uh, so the and as I don't know if we mentioned but I do a lot of work with young people and yep. I do a lot of work with disadvantaged young people um, and I have done for a while now even when I was in when I was a young person myself I'm not young anymore but I used to work with no, them when I was young yeah. as well but now they just look at me as um, you know Arty Barb. Yeah, that's that's the one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Arnie Barb, who, you know, she, she was probably hot back in the day. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't think that. But anyway, uh, but I see like a range of different young people and I see that um, as, you know, they're, they're teenagers through into their early 20s and, you know, the ones that have the parental support and the family support are really, um, you know, there's there's those that I work with and then there's mm. others that have had some really tough family situations to deal with. Mm. And it's those young people who I then want to try and connect with, you know, counselling services and, and programs in the in the community that they would never have even they often haven't even heard about Mm. or they don't even want to broach the subject or nobody's even talked to them about it before um i'm just thinking of of a couple of people that i i'm familiar with who you know they're they're entering their mid-20s they're coming up to their mid-20s and you know something's happened to them when they were teenagers or when they were young people Mm. and say something say for example something happened to them when they were 13 14 Mm. Well, well, they have their growth and their development has 
stopped at 13 or 14 mm-hmm. because they had that traumatic experience or they were they were dealing with some sustained issues you know up to that that point or that started at that time and so they've never developed past in their in their mind and in the way they think and they haven't developed past that at that young age would you say that's completely or is that like every every part of them or has there been like maybe emotionally they're still 13 14 I would, say, I would say emotionally. And so then they they make decisions that a 20-something wouldn't be making. They'd be making probably poorer decisions than that they, they would do if they'd had a different situation or a different support network. Keeping, uh, you know, this is obviously a historical case so many you have worked with i mean you've worked in this industry for over 20 years Mm. um that's how old you are um same age as me nearly thinking about that person was it that they were what were their support network like so would you say that well, they didn't have their, one. Their family was a good support to them. No. Their, their parents were open about their mental health and their no. and the condition they the parents understood or not at all. You know, understood what had happened. No, right. So they so this person is basically on their own, trying to struggle through life, and not having ever dealt with what mm. had happened to them as young people. And this is a story that, you know, this is just not just one person. This happens has happened over the years time and time again to, I would imagine, a multiple number of people. And, you know, it, it, it's really important to for everybody out in the world now to know that if there's something that you notice that's happened to a young person or you notice that they've changed, that they're different to how they're, they're, they usually are, then have a look into why that might be. Mm-hmm. And if it comes about that there's some sort of event or there's some sort of trauma that's taking place, make sure that they get the support that they need. Because 20, 30 years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, even 15 COVID. years ago, COVID. There, you gave it to me, see? Hmm. You just pause it so I can have a proper... <laughs> I, think, I think I'm recovered now. <laughs> we don't have a cough button. In radio stations, they have like a button that silences the mic for a second. It's called a cough button. Is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, and so we don't have cough buttons because we don't can't afford that level of technology. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that level of technology existed. Yeah. Uh, now, so catch it, me up. But it, you were talking about um, noticing noticing what young people are going through and and you know doing oh. something about that. But my question for you is. Oh, go on in. All right, she's waving a finger. I was at going to say you can't see. She's I going. Was, I want to have more to say on this. I've got me. more to say. Listen to me, because I stopped halfway through my cough. I was in the middle of something yeah, on my brain. So what I was saying was, fifteen, twenty, thirty years ago, mm. there was not the the services and the you know programs and things in place 
that are now in place that young people can connect to. Well, that's what I was going to ask. What well, is it different? Like, have you seen in your time in this industry, your industry, have you seen a difference between what you had available to you? Like, say, a young person comes in twenty years ago, and Centrelink's told them to get a job. They need to get a job. They're disadvantaged. They've left school. Get a job, right? You are tasked with helping them do that, right? Have you, 20 years ago, were there, you know, psychological services, mental health services, you know? It wasn't something that was the number one priority, I would say, back there. Yeah. But in saying that, they were, there was develop, they were developing, um, and they were, I mean, I'm trying to stretch back my memory to 20 years ago now. Well, look, I know because you're elderly, it's, so a, it's a struggle. Is, why is he so fixed on how old I am at the moment? Um, but what I'm saying is back in, there wasn't so much of a focus on it. So yeah. it was more like, let's just, okay, so you need a job, that'll make you feel better. Yeah. So we'll put that on. But that's more of a, we'll go and get that and get that organized. But that's more of a Band-Aid approach. Yeah. We need to look, get to the core of the issue. Yeah. So over the years, we've had programs coming in and, and counselling services coming in and psychologists and things that we are able to refer people to. And that's what the point I was making was, and I'm not talking about you know, people that are working within the community sector. No. I'm talking about people in everyday life. If you are aware of a young person who has been um, dealing with traumatic, you know, treatment in their lifetime. If the if you're aware of a young person or a child who has witnessed a traumatic event or has or has been part of a traumatic event, there are support systems out there for them now that you can tap into to mm. make sure that they get the help that they need early on in their life, so that when they get to be heading into their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they're not, um, that they have managed their trauma from their childhood as much as possible so that then they will be able to understand what triggers them and will be able to manage that in a, in a healthier way than somebody who's never gone and dealt with any childhood trauma because they come from an era where, it was just, oh, you'll be right. You know, they, the kids, the kids will be fine. So, uh, where I'm, where I'm going with this, and where I want to take the conversation, is we watched uh, the the TV show Space Invaders the other day, and there's been a few versions of this show over the years, um, but it's effectively the crux of the show is uh, there's a family who live in a hoarding situation. Um, the and having this conversation today and over the last couple of days at work, a family that lives in a hoarding situation. Now, in the past, the answer to that situation, say a, a person lived in a hoarding situation, the house was overrun, the, the yard was overrun, uh, the answer to that situation was that, that a council, if it was an outside thing, councils would send someone to clean up the yards. And if it was an inside thing, services would go in and clean up the house. 
but they'd never actually do any work with the person psychologically. I, partly because there was no recognition that it was a psychological issue or, a, or part of a mental health condition or anything like that. They were just lazy and dirty. They were lazy and dirty and a public health issue. And it, But it, my understanding is, and particularly the outside of houses when there's fairly significant hoarding and, and squalor issues, it can cost up to $40,000 to clean per, mm-hmm. per time. And, and you have councils often doing multiple cleanups over multiple years with the same house. So they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these things, right? And we were talking the other day about um, the need to train council officers and, and train housing workers and things like that to understand hoarding and squalor, to recognise the signs, to work with the person, not just to clean their house, but to work with them psychologically and emotionally and mentally to help them understand why they why they hoard, why they have clutter, to help them to kind of break some of the emotional connections to clutter and things like that. And that's been one of the really significant shifts in the way we work with a lot of mental health issues, a lot of uh, addiction issues as well, um, is understanding, you know, it's not about just taking drugs or taking the alcohol off a person. Um, it's about understanding why they drink. And there's some debate in the in the press at the moment about um, how to manage problem gambling, particularly poker machines. Should we give people a card? And the, the overwhelming thought process is that problem gamblers will find a way to gamble no matter what they do. You can't just prevent access to the to the gaming machines or or limit access. You have to deal with the reasons why people are doing it. Um, so my thought process is, you know, for you. 20 years ago, the attitude of government would have just been, okay, here's this kid, they're on on the wrong side of the tracks, they come from this marginalised socio-economic situation, you know, a single parent family or a welfare family or family that lives in the housing commission or or all of the above, Um, go and get them a job and get them on the right track. That's going to be enough. You know, if they get a job then everything will be fine and they'll be on the right track. Do you think the attitude has shifted to one now where we're saying, okay, that kid that comes from the single-parent family, uh, the you know, housing commission family, the or, pardon me, the social housing family or the, the, the welfare family, that kid's actually probably also experienced some trauma in their lives. So rather than just go getting a job's the answer, is the, is the change in attitude now... Well, that kid has got probably got some underlying things going on. We have to also, at the same time as trying to find him a job, work with those other things and try and get them. Yeah, through. absolutely, because that's that's the program that I'm part of now has been has been specifically designed to allow for us to have a have a holistic approach to this person's life. So we need to connect them into, you know to re-engage them in their community. So that could be in regards to their their work situation. It could be their education. It could be, you know, connecting them with programs and, and, and case workers and, and psychologists or counsellors or whatever it is they may need. Because every, you know, obviously everybody's individual and they have individual circumstances. So yeah. you're design what how you assist them depending on what they're currently going through at that time so yes i mean the begin because of the fact that they've they're actually allowing programs to be more specifically assisting in a holistic way 
like looking at their whole whole life and what needs to happen for their whole life hmm. rather than just one part of it uh, is something that is, you know, for the last five, ten years that's starting to, to come about more more and more so. Um, so, you know, for young families now, that there's there's actual programs that young people that have become fam- like parents can go and have access to and, and get that support that they need. You know, young people that were having babies 20 years ago would, would not have had that. So some of the – and again, I know that there's confidentiality and things like that, but some of the people that you're seeing, we're now taking into account that they might be young mums and dads. We're now taking into account well, – some- some of them are. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, like in terms of then, well, you've got to find them a job. It's not just find them a job, screw the fact that they've got a kid. It is find them a job. I mean, I'm talking about the government's position. It's find them a job, but also work with the fact that they've got, you know, a child, work with the fact that they've probably got some social level of social disadvantage mm. and, and language and literacy and, and those sorts of things, mm. issues around that, I should say. Yeah, there's, yeah. A whole, there's a whole range of things that they can access now. And... But what I'm, I'm, I really want people to take away from this is that if you know that there's a young person or a child in your life that has gone through something, um, that is going through something or has experienced something, to make sure that you connect them with the services that will be able to help them at a young age so that they're not um, you know, struggling into adulthood. Uh, so if... Uh, you know, potentially we're seeing these kids and, and I guess what we're talking about is, you know, these kids that perhaps have slipped through the gaps or that, that no one's ever actually understood that they've got mental health issue, mental health condition, psychological trauma, psychological, any kind of damage. For you, like I see you being... a Employment services traditionally has been seen as being part of the solution but never really taken too seriously. I see the work that you do as being something that is a part of that solution now. Hmm. Well, it's not just employment services. It's actually looking at how you dis- how you are taking a disengaged young person and connecting them with their back with their community. So it's recognising the, you know, and they might not recognize it themselves so Mm. you may not have any clue about what happened to them when they're young when they were younger Mm. you might not have any clue about how what their family relationships are like and their social connections are like but you start with a with a with you know what do you want to do with your life is where you start with these young people and then you unpack that and say well okay you want to become you know uh, an astronaut, what do we have to do to get you there? Mm. So what level are you at at the moment and where have you been and how, how far have you come towards being that astronaut that, you want to, that you've dreamed about all your life? Mm. Or somebody might not even believe that they can be anything. So they'll come to you, to, to you and they'll say, I don't know what I want to do. I don't want, I don't want to do anything. You know, and often that's for because they've grown up in a situation where they haven't seen their family go to work every day or they haven't seen achievements happening 
respect for people in their life. So they mm. and and maybe they've been told all their life that they're not they're not good enough. So mm. then they don't feel that they can go and achieve and do what they want to do. And it's something that oh, I'd really like to do this, but I'll never be able to. Mm. So it's part of giving them that um, the belief that they can do. You know, and they might not reach to the astronaut status, but what is it about being an astronaut that they love? So can they be, you know, someone that works where the astronauts take off so that they can be in that in that area or in that environment and still love it and still get what they want out of it? Mm-hmm. But it's about looking at where they're at at that point in time what they may have missed out on mm. and then how you connect them into that community. So it could be looking at not just going and getting them a job as an astronaut's cleaner, for, for example, but going and getting, you know, what, what training do they need? What studies do they need? Okay, they've dropped out of school because they hate school or they were bullied at school and that's part of the trauma, traumatic experiences that they've had. Mm. So now there are a lot of different schooling options now. So you don't have to go into the school in the in the traditional sense. There yeah. are schools that are, have been designed for young people who cannot deal with being in the in this traditional the regular, top school system. Regular school system. Mm. So there are options out there available to them that there weren't those options when I was at school, or mm. you know around that time so Mm. you know all part of it's 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 also not just about going and getting these people these young people that have suffered as a child perhaps um not just getting them in front of counselors and everything it's about looking at okay what what's what's the every part of your life what can we do now to to get that get you re-engaged and and get you feeling like you have control over your own life. Mm. So if you had, and and don't, you just I want you to just kind of imagine the person in your head. If you had a kid that needed that, what's step number one for you? Is it just have the conversation? Is it... Yeah, a- because the thing is you have to build, for anybody to get anywhere with a young person whether they're a child or they're a, they're becoming an adult and and this is the same for anybody any anyone that you're talking to you need to build the rapport with them mm. so it's about talking to them it's about having those discussions with them and it's about have allowing them to feel safe in being able to to open up to you and talk to you about what they really want to do mm. and where they're really at because oftentimes people and people do this not just young people and not just kids but People in general will only tell you what they think you want to hear. Mm. So you'll ask a question and they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, everything's good. Everything's not necessarily good, but they'll tell you that it is because you th- they think that that's what they should do. Mm. Or they think that if they don't, if they tell you what's really going on, then that's going to be detrimental to them. When in actual fact, it could, would be the complete opposite because you're in a situation where you want to be able to connect them with people that can help them with the problem that's really going on. Do you have, in the 20-odd years that you've worked in the industry you work in, do you have a favourite success story? Do you have one that stands out? I've got heaps. I don't have... Pick one. I don't want to pick one, really. Well, pick seven. Tell them all. People. 
<laughs> People will listen as long as we tell them to. Is there, is there one that stands out in your head? Is just So I, I was thinking as you were talking about the astronaut example, I worked in disability employment many years ago and there was a young man who used to come to our program who had fairly significant autism and, a, and a, some intellectual disability. He wanted to be a pilot, right or wrong. He wanted to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. And this guy was never going to be a pilot. No no mental trauma or anything like that. No mental health issues necessarily. But um, he, um, we examined, as you said, why, what, what was it about that job that appealed to him? Was it travel? Was it whatever? Would it, and it, all it simply was is he loved planes and he loved being around planes. All right? Now, the person, the manager that I had at the time had some connections and ended up getting him a job in the catering team with one of the airlines. And his job was to stock the drink and snack trolleys mm-hmm. that they have on planes and to then push them onto... Take them our favourite trolleys. <laughs> take them onto the plane, right? Now, number one, the thing had to be stacked a particular way with particular things and, and that appealed to the structured nature of his personality, the autistic part of his personality. He was very detail-orientated so he could get it right. But he's happy as Larry because he's around planes all day long. So with him, it wasn't about being a pilot necessarily. It was just that that was the one job that he knew where he got to be around planes. So that's where he wanted to be. And he wanted to be a pilot. Hmm. And that still stands out for me as a story where, you know, this guy was just, you know, we've, we we got to the core of who he wanted to be and who he was and what he wanted. Hmm. And we were able to work with him to get that well, that's the thing, you, can, you call it the field of fascination. So what is it about, and this is something that I learned many years ago when I was, mm. you know, in one of my roles um, in training that we did, was a field of fascination. So, you know, okay, you're saying you want to be a doctor. Well, why do you want to be a doctor? Because I want to help people. Mm. Because I want to work in a hospital. Okay, well, there's a range of other roles that... <coughs> are in hospitals that you could probably do right now. Hmm. Like you could be a doctor. You might never get to that stage or you might be a doctor in 10, 15 years' time. Dr. Adam. Yeah. Um, but they, but it's about looking at, well, what is it about being a doctor that you love? Hmm. Or I want to be a nurse. Well, what else? What other things are around being a nurse that you – why do you want to do that? Because oh, I want to – you know, could you be an a, an could you work as an assistant in nursing? Could you work in a in a nursing home or a, or you know as a disability carer and have that same have that be in that same environment, mm. even though you're not at that level yet? And it's not to say that you're not going to reach that level one day in the future, mm. but you're not going to be able to walk straight into the top job. So, where, can we get you working somewhere in that environment? Mm where you can work your way up and and develop in that in that sense. So have you ever seen a kid come in or anyone come in because so number one um meaning and purpose are so important in terms of mental health recovery. In terms of managing psychological well-being, um if you look at the the eight dimensions of, you know, um well-being, 
uh, or eight factors of well-being, two of them are occupational and financial. Yeah. Um, in your experience, have you seen someone come in, yeah, kind of, kind of broken, you know, mentally not well, a little bit hopeless, which is the other, I guess, big component. Helpless. Of, of men- well, you know, helpless as well, but hopeless, you know. I think the people that we work with in the industries that we work in sometimes, and the jobs that we've had in the past, there's sometimes people that come in with little hope. Mm. Um, have you ever had someone come in and just do that 180-degree turnaround because mm. you found them the job? Yeah, it, it. a lot of the time it comes down to their own motivation as well. So you got to get to the get to the point where they're you know we can help as much as possible but then it comes down to whether they want to accept that help at the time. Mm. So yeah there has been there has been a lot of situation I mean there's been hundreds of people over the years that have done anyone sent out Yeah I'm not, I, just, I just don't. But Barb has forgotten that the point of the podcast <laughs> is to tell us these stories. <laughs> is there one that stands out for you? Is there one where you go, this person came in, they were broken, and not not well, the I fact that it. the job actually was the main thing that fixed them, but it was a. So, I, like I always talk about me, you know, when spooking for me was a big part of my recovery and doing that work I didn't know I could do that work I didn't know I was good at that work and then all of a sudden I found something I was good at and in terms of you know giving me back some self-confidence some self-worth some value it actually I never realized at the time but looking back on my life that created a really that was a really positive thing for me and my recovery well like I said to someone today if you if you are energized by something if if you're in a role where you feel energized by it then you're in the right position mm. um you know I, I spoke to someone today who's just started it in a role that they've they've started in and they didn't have previous experience in it but they've got a lot of passion for it and they're very um they're very excited to be in the role because they and they want to do the best they can and they want to throw themselves into it and you know and I I said well the experience isn't isn't what matters it's you know not that you haven't had any experience before if it energizes you you know sometimes you're just born to do certain things and and you you're made in a certain way to work in in a particular environment Mm. and if it energizes you then you're on the right track and I think if it helps towards your mental health recovery, if it or if it even helps to you to um, just feel better about yourself, mm. you know. Again, these kids that are coming in and or people that are coming in to see you are people who don't even necessarily they just don't necessarily even know that they have a, something happening with their mental health or a mental health condition, mm. and um, maybe you just get to be the person that helps them feel a bit better about themselves. Well, often you can be the only person that they're able to talk to in their life, necessarily. They might not have that support to be able to talk to anyone. 
but at least you've got one person. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's like we better let you go to bed. You'll turn into a pumpkin soon. Yeah, because I'm so old. <laughs> Apparently. Thank, thank you, Barbie.